Well, hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Fully Automated, an Occupy IR Theory podcast. So you're very welcome joining us today for what we hope you will find to be a very special episode of Fully Automated. As you know, the last two episodes of the show have been focused on the Brexit debate and whether or not the cause of the British left is served best by a departure from the European Union or by, as some people put it, uh, remaining and rebelling in the hope of somehow reforming it. Uh, two episodes ago, our guest was Lee Jones, an advocate um, of the so-called full Brexit. And you can find his work, of course, on that website, uh, links in the show notes. But during that show, Jones advocated the idea that uh, the ideals of the left cannot be satisfied within the European Union, whereas the most meaningful historical victories of the left have been achieved only by wielding the power of the state. Then in our most recent episode, we heard a rebuttal of this idea from Luke Ashworth, who suggested that while the political entity we know as the modern state has indeed played a uh, important historical role for the left, its time has been fleeting and the forces of globalization are today of such power that any project of returning to sovereignty uh, will prove inevitably fruitless. So this episode uh, was recorded late in the afternoon on Friday, March 29th. Uh, some people would have called that Brexit Eve, which is, of course, that it was the day before Brexit was originally supposed to happen. We recorded it in the lobby bar of the Toronto Sheraton during the 60th annual convention of the International Studies Association. And it's a special episode because it brings back to the microphone uh, Lee Jones and Luke Ashworth this time live uh, in person for a debate and to keep things cordial uh, we provided them with um, a number of beers and they appreciated that gesture I think because the exchange proved to be probably uh, one of the most collegial airing of political grievances in podcast history but as if that wasn't exciting enough this special showdown in the Sheraton episode also brings together another famous Brexit rivalry, uh, this time none other than Phil Cunliffe and Sean Malloy, both of the Department of Politics and International Relations at the University of Kent. Now, these guys are well known for their epic public disagreements on Twitter, and this episode is a rare opportunity for listeners to hear uh, Cunliffe, whose voice may be familiar to some listeners who especially uh, follow already the Alpha Bunga Bunga podcast. He's a regular host on there. And and uh, Sean Malloy, uh, both of them do a great uh, effort at pretending to be polite to each other um, as they work their way through their various disagreements. Now, a quick note for listeners on the parameters of the show. Uh, the parliamentary dynamics surrounding Brexit are at this stage in an incredible state of flux. And for that reason, we've largely chosen to avoid the topic 
of whether or how Theresa May can at this stage secure her deal, avoid a drop at Brexit. We do get into a little bit of it at the end. That said, for listeners who are interested in a more up to the minute play by play analysis of what's going on in the House of Commons, uh, we can recommend staying tuned to Novara Media's Tisky Sour show. It's available on YouTube, uh, named after the, uh, the, the Polish beer available in Britain, Tisky Sour. Today's show from Tisky Sour featured Sienna Rogers and Owen Jones and looked at a number of important questions, including whether Theresa May is prepared to sacrifice the Conservative Party in order to cede any kind of meaningful ground to the Labour Party's demands for a common market deal, and uh, the extent to which the various divisions within the Labour Party on the question of a second referendum will be a problem for Corbyn moving forward. Uh, I should also mention that uh, the bar we were in was starting to get pretty noisy by the end of this session. We've done our best to clear up the sound, but it's going to get pretty rowdy towards the end. We just ask your patience all the same. We think uh, listeners will uh, find it uh, rewarding. So that said, without any further ado, uh, let's get on with the show here. Um, We'll start off uh, with Luke Ashworth and Lee Jones. So hello everyone, welcome to Fully Automated, live from ISA 2019 in Toronto. Um, We have in the uh, red corner, Luke Ashworth, (laughs) and in the white corner, Lee Jones. Uh, These are are, um, very collegial, but uh, disagreeing (laughs) parties from our last two episodes. And um, I think I have a kind of a question that I want to get Luke started on, and that is just to maybe retrace from the last episode uh, your views on why we need to situate the European Union as a, as, a, as, a, as a project that's occurring within the context of political economy, and why a critique of political economy is necessary when we talk about the EU. Yeah. Um, because it strikes me that part of your initial rebuttal to Lee stems on that. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe I could um, start that off with, I uh, recently came across uh, a uh, Latour um, uh, book where he does, he presents this metaphor uh, about globalization and about modernization, this idea that we're all on a plane and we're being taken from the local to the global. And this idea of, uh, of modernization being the moving of the, uh, of, of the plane. Uh, but of course, the globalization isn't possible. Uh, it's a lie. Uh, we can't be glo- all globalized. Uh, they, the planet can't take it, uh, but also uh, the elites are not going to accept it either. So there's a point in this story where uh, they say, right, let's turn around. We have to turn around. Uh, there's no way. We've got to go back to where we came from. But when they turn around, they realize that the local's gone too. And then they're left with this conundrum. Where, where do we land? And if we don't land, we're going to crash. And then Latour then, of course, develops his ideas for a sort of a third attractor where we have to go. And um, I think that, in some ways, respect sums it up, is that, uh, yeah, I think something that we could probably all agree on here is that that, that promise, that neoliberal promise, can't be delivered on. 
but where I suppose that probably we would, um, myself and Lee would differ, is about where the plane should go now. Um, my feeling would be that you can't go back uh, to the local, um, and that's because, uh, to use the kind of work from Earth Systems theory, that uh, you know, we've had the great uh, acceleration. Uh, the world has fundamentally changed. Um, we can't now go back to the state. There was a time when we could, but we can't now. And um, we're going to have to look for new models, new models of democracy, new models of socialism. And uh, I would agree with a lot of the criticisms of the European Union. Um, but at the same time, I don't necessarily see an abandonment of the European Union and go, going back to the state as, as, as a viable alternative. So we're kind of forced, like the people on the plane, to try to search for that third attractor uh, beyond the local. And I think that's probably where, that's where we start disagreeing. Do you want to respond to that? Well, I guess to, to sustain your metaphor or Latour's metaphor, uh, if we have to wait for developing new models of democracy and new models of socialism and we have to stay in the European Union while we're doing that, then the plane will run out of fuel by the time we find somewhere to land. Um, you know, while we're, while we're on that plane, uh, the, the oxygen is running out, the fuel is leaking, the fuselage is coming apart. Uh, it's not a safe place to be. You know, it, it's a place that has hollowed out democracy. It's neutralized the political left across the entire continent, partly by sucking it into the, into the EU itself. Um, and it's an unreformable institution. So it's it's not easy, I think, to you know think about how we turn this plane around. But there isn't another destination. That's the thing. You know, the EU is a dead end. Uh, we have to return to a scale of political organizing, I think, that allows ordinary people to have some influence over the political outcomes and creates a, a terrain where you know, the left has some kind of purchase, where organized labor can have some, some kind of purchase. The only time, the only place, the only scale where that's happened is at the national scale. So, me, I'm glad you sort of outlined that because I think a lot of people listening um, might have uh, sort of an instinctive response to that that would say, or that would want to ask you rather, why is the European Union, in your view, so completely beyond reform? And I suppose the question would require some history uh, in the mix as well in order to understand its thrust, right? So, you know, you have a European Union that is ostensibly born not from a neoliberal project, but from a post-war Keynesian project, which had a very different economic direction. Probably it didn't become the behemoth that's constraining our fiscal policies all over the European Union, all over Europe, until, say, the 70s, beginning of the 70s, and then obviously by the 80s. So, if the European Union didn't start off evil, 
Now, you know, and I, and I know there's some people in our mutual circle of friends who maybe would challenge that argument, but what, what's your response? So, uh, the post-war Labour government in the UK was very suspicious of European integration. Absolutely. So from its very inception, the left was very suspicious of European integration because it saw uh, an attempt to constitutionalise a legal order at the European level that would outlaw socialist policies and socialist planning. And that's why, you know, right the way through the 1970s, it was the dominant position in the Labour Party was to be opposed to European integration. It was it bitterly divided the Labour Party in the 1975 referendum. So I don't think it's... I don't think it's quite true to say that, you know, it was benign and fine for a few decades and then something went wrong. I think that that capitalist interests were baked into European integration from the the get-go and socialists at the time could see that. But no doubt with the Maastricht Treaty in 92, that's when the European Union takes on a very neoliberal, order-liberal character. Um, And, you know, what Stephen Gill calls economic constitutionalism happens, the neoliberal policies that have been implemented by Thatcher and others get locked in at at the continental level. Um, The left, unfortunately, because it suffered a decade of defeats, throws its lot in uh, with the European Union under the guise of the social chapter um, and the rest is history. In terms of why it's unreformable, you know, you can just go to the the Lisbon Treaty and you can see the processes that would uh, have to be gone through to reform the European Union in a substantial sense, you know, to really change that constitution. Uh, and first of all, you need a, a majority of governments in the European Council to agree to a reform process. So not just one socialist government proposing change, but 15 uh, that would agree to it. There's then a yes. constitutional convention where everybody's represented and yeah. the president of the, the council can stuff it with whoever they like. That's going to reach a consensus. And then it's going to be ratified by all the states. So it's been it's been made deliberately difficult to change. That's by design. Most constitutions are deliberately difficult to change. And the constitution of the European Union is neoliberalism. And that's so that's been locked in, and then the lock-in has been locked in. So you know, people like DM25 who are pushing this remain and reform agenda, they can never explain how you surmount those institutional obstacles. Interesting. Okay, so that leads us to an interesting question, which I think we can extend to both of you, uh, which is uh, one of the dominant um, arguments that comes up against uh, the idea of a, of a DM25 style approach uh, is, is precisely this idea of the lack of a European demos. And I'm just curious if we could sort of address this, turn to this question of what a demos ostensibly is. I mean, because it seems sometimes to me that hearing uh, or listening to people who argue in favor of Brexit, especially on the left, that their their argument seems to depend on a definition of the demos that is more identitarian in its nature than material. And I'm just curious why that needs to be so. Like, why do we need to have a, a, a sense of the demos? Like, I, I mean, uh, I suppose you could say British identity 
you know, it's, it's more entrenched and institutionalized, but it doesn't seem to me that a Marxist would want to look at British identity as necessarily exhausting the potentiality of the concept demos, because of course, this spoils the division of uh, the uh, goods and services, the benefits of the of, of the British economy have not been very evenly you know, handed out. So um, the same would apply then at the European Union level. And, and it's not clear to me why demos need to be an identitarian concept. Luke, did you want to maybe come with that first? Or? Well, I thought maybe just come come back uh, um, on a discussion with Lee there on um, the issue of uh, the question of the reformability of uh, the European Union. Because, uh, again, it... I mean that's where the that's that's where the devil is. This question of whether or not uh, the uh, the EU has been is unreformable and has been locked in, and I, I'm not entirely sure that we can make that argument. Um, for a start, um, we have the fact that the ideas have changed in the European Union, uh, and we have the situation that many states in the European Union actually find it quite easy to work around uh, the European. Union, and even with two uh, far-right liberal governments, they're able to ba basically stymie uh, European attempts to uh, 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 to uh, to uh, interfere with their with their laws at a domestic level. Um, so we've got a situation here with the with the European level uh, level, which uh, actually it doesn't seem unreformable. Certainly not compared to the states. Uh, uh, the states generally. The states often, uh, yeah. And in fact, you know, in that sense, I think we still can see the European level as a, as, as a battleground like anything else. But I think the problem is much deeper than that, is that in some respects, again, uh, we can't really go back to the states. That's the problem. And that's what we've seen with uh, the kind of the development of the, for example, the international trade regime, uh, just one aspect of it. Uh, but the arguments, for example, for a, a no-deal Brexit assumes that we can trade under WTO rules, uh, except that we know that no country does. Um, it's impossible. There is now a web of interconnections, but also there's webs of, and this maybe comes into the Demos question. There are also yeah, webs so, of, because it's again it's getting back to the idea of material thing. Exactly. Where where is where is the community here? Um, you know, quite often I think the um, the Northern Ireland and the Irish border issue was seen as, particularly by many Tory Brexiteers and the ERG, as being a kind of an irritant. But I think it's actually central. It's central to the kind of communities that are being built uh, around the world. It's, it's the most obvious one. Uh, but the fact is we have here uh, a situation where we have communities in one space that cannot be served by a return to the nation state. And in some respects, that's part of exactly the same issue that's dealing with EU citizens, EU 27 citizens living in the UK and UK citizens living in the EU 27. So we've got a situation here where um, that return to the nation state isn't possible. 
obviously I don't agree. Yeah, of course you don't. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> I know that. Right. Uh, and it's not because um, it's not because I'm a nationalist or because I no, no, really feel don't. a strong sense of British identity. Um, I generally don't. Uh, I feel very European. My values are European. Uh, in fact, you know, my feelings about democracy. That's my primary motive in all of this, and that's a European value. That's why I find the European Union so abominable. So it's the great irony here is that the two things about Europe, with its great Enlightenment traditions, has been conflated with a neoliberal and undemocratic institution. You know, I, I, I would like to think that I bear uh, and bear out European values, but I think you uh, under understate the the power and the force that states still have. Okay. Basically, the European Union is sweet generous. Most people around the world live in nation states. And a lot of people, a lot more people, want nation states. Right? There are lots of uh, separatist movements and unrecognized peoples. They want their own states. Why? Because they want their political interests to be represented in, in a body that they can control and they can hold accountable. The vast majority of people around the world don't have the European Union and they get along just fine. Uh, this argument, which you, you encounter a lot in a lot of different bits of international relations literature, that like, the state can't do things on its own. States are very powerful. And in fact, the European Union works through states. It works through the, the transformation of states, through the domestication of European legislation. It's the states that that make up the European Union. Without them, it wouldn't function. It's not, it's not, we're not being run out of Brussels. We're being run out of Westminster, via Brussels, back through Westminster, this very convoluted form. It's about taking the state that is currently embedded in European structures and all of its capacity is being directed towards the promotion of competition and, and trade within a European scale and taking that capacity back and using it for something else. And if we say, you know, we can't go back to the state and we can't take that capacity, we can't use it for anything else, that to me is a council of despair yeah. because states still matter they're incredibly powerful entities and when it comes to the question of identity and materiality and, demos. and the demos what does that mean the reality is that in the European Union politics is still overwhelmingly national mm-hmm. um, just look at the most uh, uh, the strongest expression as, as Europhiles would have it of, of the European political identity or European de- demos the, the European Parliament elections First of all, hardly anybody votes. It's about a third, you know, 30, 40% turnout. Varies, varies by nationality. But most people don't vote because instinctively they feel this is a very remote, kind of pointless entity. There's no point in participating. But interestingly, when they vote, they elect local national parties. So in the UK, for example, we vote for Labour, Conservative, or UKIP, or Lib Dem, or whoever. We don't vote for you know, the European Left Party or the European Right Party. Those parties then, those representatives of, of national populations then develop groupings within the European Parliament. <coughs> so even the most, you know, quote-unquote democratic institution of the EU 
does not embed a European sense of identity. People vote among in national blocks, and then those blocks are, are uh, divvied up in the European Parliament. Yeah, I think Giannis uh, Varoufakis is so tired. You can make that argument for TM25. Well, not ostensibly what they're sort of saying as well. What they're saying, what they're saying is we need trans a transnational European party. Yeah, and right because yeah. we don't have one at the moment. Right. So right. that is actually implicitly recognizing what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah. But interestingly, DM25 is not the first time this was tried. Uh-huh. People forget, but after the the Irish uh, referendum, you know when the Irish were forced to vote twice because the first time they got it wrong on the Lisbon right, Treaty, right? That, that's not allowed. Not quite what happens. Uh, <laughs> I think that is exactly what happened. Uh, no. Declan Gandhi... Okay, you yeah. remember this, right? I do, I remember. Yeah. Declan Gandhi set up an attempt to set up a transnational yeah. European party to push back against all this stuff. And it went absolutely nowhere. I think DM25 has got a bit more you know, legs behind it, given yeah. everything that's happened since. But it's not the first time this has happened. It just didn't work. Because people fundamentally, still, after all these years of European integration, people still look fundamentally to their own national governments to take care of them, look after them. Their identity is still heavily locally rooted, um, and the voting patterns are nationally determined. Now, I'm not saying it's a good thing. I'm just saying that's the way it is. You know, if you give me a fully fledged European democracy, fine. You know, I'm not. I'm not wedded to the British nation state. Right. Um, I'm wedded to democracy and working people controlling their lives. That's all. So, but, but just to pin you down a little bit on this. So, Demos for you, um, I'm still not clear. It, it, it seems sometimes that you're talking about it as an identity, or maybe other times I'm hearing you almost like talking about it as a as a form of institutionalized behavior. It's uh, both. It's both. I mean, that's produced over time, right? Mm-hmm. Nations are imagined communities, but if they. They are. Yeah, they start from something. I I agree. They start from something. They become institutionalised. Those institutions then uh, reproduce and extend that sense of identity and so on. But that process, in terms of the the formation of a particular scale of governance and an identification with the nation, has been the most the most successful unit. And as as somebody on the left who wants to transcend nations, that's a matter of regret. But we've never managed to produce an identity that has successfully transcended that. People still think of these frames. Still today. Uh, I mean, not to sound too Marxist about it, I suppose, although why not? Um, aren't, isn't the state itself ultimately, as it expresses itself today, the result of class struggle? I mean, I suppose the things, that the things, the material demands to which it answers and yields frequently are uh, the result of enduring, ongoing demands Absolutely issued true. from below. So we have seen a number of states come and go over time. Yeah. Uh, Britain itself, you know, Ireland, all emerging from very sort of chaotic uh, medieval statelet systems. Uh, Obviously, various projects of domination imperialism are are part of that history as well. It's it's a very new institution. Yeah, and and so, but I mean, I'm thinking of the United States of America briefly 
and you know the the struggle of civil rights activists against what seemed like an intractable state form. Um, and so, in a sense, I while I am deeply sympathetic to particularly the European Union, I guess I sort of stumble a little bit in terms of trying to connect with the the reason why. A European demos cannot be fought for, cannot be demanded. You know, that, that, I'm not saying it can't. Yeah, okay. I'm not saying it can't. Mm-hmm. And as I say, if you if there was a European demos and there was a possibility of creating a democratic European state, I'd be all for it. Yeah. It's just it's just that's fantasy land. And and what has what has happened since the 1980s is the internationalization of the state, the transformation of the British state and other European states into European member states, which are highly networked with each other at the executive level across borders and implement decisions taken at a continental level behind closed doors. That's how the European Union functions. So the transnationalization of the state has not, it has embedded the class interest that triumphed in the 1980s, which is, you know, large scale internationally oriented capital, not the interests of workers. Workers were crushed in the 1980s and have not recovered since. So the international state that people might have looked for historically on the left, it's not an international state that's dominated by the executives of capitalist states and big business interests that systematically lobby the EU and basically write EU regulations. That's not what the left dreamed of when it dreamed of internationalism and the coordination of workers' states that's in the Communist Manifesto, for example. That's not what it was dreamed of. We've got a nightmare. Not a dream, a nightmare. So we, the only way is to say that this transnationalization is not the one we were looking for. Right, right. right? So let's let's start again. Uh-huh. We start at a scale of governance, institutions of governance, that permit democratic control. And okay. you start from the position of winning the battle for democracy as Marx and Engels were and move from there. So Luke, those are some important challenges to your argument. Do you want to respond to them? Yes. Um, I think the first thing is that what Lee's concentrated on there is identity. Right. And, uh, you know, point taken. It's a good point. The only thing is that uh, in many respects, uh, the the issue's gone beyond identity quite some time ago. Uh, we're looking, again, going back to this concept from Earth System Science, we've gone through a major, tra- great transformation since the 1950s. Yeah. Uh, that has uh, that has changed our relationship with the planet. It's also changed our um, uh, it's changed our, our, our political economy. Yeah. Um, we're now in a situation where um, we can't go back and start again. Um, that's kind of closed off to us. The, the uh-huh. state was a kind of a, a short moment that we had uh, that kind of sort of uh, uh, emerges as uh, as an institution that we could fight over with the Night Watchman State in the nineteenth century. Um, you know the victories were won in terms of the uh, the development of the welfare state in the 20th century. Uh, but even then, even actually uh, when we were dealing with kind of uh, the process of deglobalization after the First World War, uh, it was very clear that, that that there were problems with states. That it wasn't um, um, it could no longer. Uh, control and um, the social life. I mean, David Matrani talks about how uh, the uh, this has become a security problem in the mid twentieth uh, century with the, the state breaking the bounds. The, sorry, the 
that had become a problem uh, in the mid-20th century with the social life kind of breaking the bounds of the state and how this had, uh, actually was fostering and creating wars uh, as uh, various uh, the, uh, states tried to gain autarky through conquest. Um, so whether we like it or not, we can't go back to the beginning. We have to start anew. Now, I think there's another problem here that uh, the neoliberals and the, the people with money have, uh, they've stolen a march on us. They've already gone global. Uh, we can see this with things like the Panama Papers, the Paradise Papers, they've internationalized themselves. They actually want us to go local. They want us to go back to the States. Uh, they want us to, to be parochialized so that they can get on with moving between borders, running the world. And I think it's very important for us as socialists to follow the power. Yeah. Now, I take Lee's point that, yeah, it's going to be a struggle to start trying to assemble uh, a democracy uh, at other levels. Right. But the point is, we have no choice. Yeah. And when we add that to the issue of uh, issues like climate change, with a global state system that is designed, because it's designed to prevent aggressors, designed to prevent um, actions being taken at the international level, we're dealt with a situation in which um, uh, we have to carry out kind of major democratic reforms beyond the state, where the power is. And if we don't do that, then we're just going to be, we're going to be marginalized, we're going to be irrelevant. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. So it's a different view of the state. So this is, uh, reminds me very much of uh, Hart and Negri's argument uh, that, you know, it's easier to fight power when it's lost its sort of uh, fragmented centers of control. Yeah. You have just one point of resistance that you can flip at sort of the end of the day. That, yeah. So long as we're parts of that in states, we're, you know, fine. So it is, it is an interesting uh, yeah. uh, uh, contrast. And it, it is a very different, I think the two of us have a, have a different view of, of the strengths of the state. Um, and, yeah. um, but I think shared values in the sense that we're both not nationalists. Well, we're both looking, we both have the same enemy. But really what we're talking about here, I think, Lee, is tactics. Our strategy. Strategies. Um, so, um, with that all said, uh, let me introduce to the microphone Phil Cunliffe, who is um, a voice you may be familiar with from the Alpha Bunga Bunga podcast, where Lee has also appeared a couple of times. Um, Phil, one of the, to change topics slightly away from um, uh, state strategy and uh, whether the European Union is reformable or not. I think one of the valuable contributions that your show uh, with your colleagues ha has been making um, it, it pertains to this idea that uh, we are experiencing a loss of confidence in our ability to act politically and you've articulated this you and your colleagues have articulated this through the concept of knobs the neoliberal order breakdown syndrome so I was wondering would you mind starting us today just with a little, uh, as you understand it, exposition on what knobs is. Because I, I, I have a funny feeling that neither Luke nor Lee will disagree with that as a major sort of launch point for our assessment of what afflicts us politically today in the European Union. Yeah, so knobs, um, neoliberal order breakdown syndrome, we were trying to capture all the various symptoms that we see um, in political life at the moment. But particularly associated with the liberal left, um, which is strongly neoliberal, and in particular the idea that there's an in 
inability to deal with or process the way in which society and politics is changing at the moment. And so um, people take refuge in nostalgia for the very recent past. So people imagine that it's possible to go back to um, 2016 before Trump was elected. They imagine it's possible to go back to uh, May 2016 before the Brexit referendum. They imagine that um, Trump's significance is only an accident of the Electoral College, or that um, he's a deep sleeper for Russia, or that Russian bot stole the Brexit referendum. And all of these are um, ways of evading the hard challenge, which is the fact that society and politics is evolving in ways that um, our old understandings and categories can't process. And so you get the um, that inability to deal with reality. And so it's a syndrome, and there are many symptoms of it. Russiagate is one. Um, derangement over, say, um, derangement over Trump is another, I think. All sorts of manifestations of this Brexit really weird. Vote. Russian, Russian information campaigns. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, all of that. Perhaps even also throwing in uh, Syria, Venezuela, any other, uh, a number of sort of foreign policy ventures that are going on out there. Many, I mean, so I think there's um, many symptoms of it can be identified in the sense of this inability, this desperate desire to cling on to um, the neoliberal world order, which is very clearly crumbling around us. Yeah, just look at the fate of uh, Emmanuel Macron, who. Uh, was everyone's golden boy until a few months ago and now has been shown to be completely unpopular. Absolutely, and the uh, the famous economist front cover of uh, President Macron walking on water yeah. captured the sentiment that he was the one who was going to turn the tide, um, the saintly figure, and he's completely, clearly, um, utterly incapable of dealing with France's problems, deeply illegitimate. And by the same token, though, you know, within a few weeks of the Gilets Jaunes, the Yellow Vest movement emerging, you had an article in the Washington Post um, speculating on how far. Uh, the Gilets Jaunes were sponsored by or supported by Russia. Yeah. Simple inability to imagine that there might be deeply rooted discontent in France itself. It's simply inconceivable within that mind frame. So neoliberal order breakdown syndrome, taking uh, taking refuge in fantasy and avoiding trying to evade the way in which reality is going. I mean, I think one of the sort of most telling uh, symptoms of this, by the way, is how even very uh, sort of previously acceptable critiques of the way the media operates that would be sort of inspired by Noam Chomsky or something like this, you know, have now be so, become uh, quite easily uh, attackable as Trumpian. And, you know, like, oh, so how can you attack the media? That's Trumpian, right? Yeah. This is a sort of strange impasse that, that, we, that we've uh, arrived at. But moving on from there, I wanted to ask you a question. I wonder if I can just um, bring you back to uh, a week or two ago uh, when I believe you were in the audience of a special live Brexit episode of Bunga Bunga. Can you just tell us a little bit about what was uh, the inspiration behind that episode, who you brought together, and as uh, someone in the audience, uh, what your take was on the debate? Of course, bearing in mind that sitting to my left here, both politically and geologically, <laughs> is 
uh, is Lee Jones. <laughs> so we had a, um, it was our first live event for the uh, Alpha Bunga Bunga, our podcast. And we wanted to have a debate about, we wanted to have a debate about the politics of Brexit, but at the European level. So rather than talking within the frame of British national politics, to think through its implications and how it might play out within the European context. So to that end, we had Caterina um, Principe, who's uh, who's a member of the Portuguese left. We also had Lee to your left, geologically talking about the um, geographically as representing the full Brexit. And then we also had David Adler, who works for Varoufakis's transnational European party for the European elections, um, European DM25. Spring. European, European Spring. European Spring, yeah. Right. So it was, a, it was a really, I mean, I mean, I'm biased, obviously, but I think it was a really good debate because... Um, it was a great debate. There was a genuine collision of views, I think, which was intellectually productive. And also it wasn't the usual kinds of arguments that have been rehearsed before. I think um, everyone was forced to come up with new, new kinds of accounts of um, how they um, how they see the how they see the issue. And I guess what struck me the most, my take-home point was, David Adler was making the case that um, Brexit, you know, Brexit can have its own dynamic, but that the rest of the European Union isn't going anywhere, and that it remains very legitimate among the populations of member states, and that it can be remained and reformed. So Brexit it can be a moment for British democracy and European democracy can be expressed through the European Union. And it seemed to me he was evading hard choices. And that was the main problem with, I think, the case that he was trying to put across. That there are hard political choices involved, which he was imagining it's possible to fight on every front and that everything can go in um, the favor of the left and that everything is ultimately works. There's a cunning of reason that will work towards the benefit of the left in the long run. And that it doesn't involve hard political choices in the interim. Mm-hmm. And that was my main, uh, that was what I realized is important, that we do confront hard political choices. You can't fight on every front. And you need to decide on which which side of the barricade effectively you want to be on. So Phil, how can uh, people tune into that podcast or find out more about Bunga Bunga? So we're at, our handle is BungaCast on Twitter, and you can find everything there. You can download and find the links to our episodes there, but we're also available on Podbean and uh, the usual um, the usual uh, apps for downloading podcasts. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us. Okay, well, we have Sean Malloy coming into us uh, all the way from Aaron Gabraw. How, how are you feeling? Uh, a little better than I was this morning. So. Okay, a bit of a migraine. Yes. Okay, we can leave that out of the recording. I'm just saying hi. Uh, yeah. Excellent. <laughs> Sean, why don't we just get going with... Uh-huh. What, what what lessons you draw from the story of Brexit so far? Is it a is it is it a story of capitalism or is it a story of democracy? I think it's it's a story of both. It's also a story of um, maybe the British Constitution reaching a crisis point. And moments of crises are inherent in any political system or any political culture. But this seems to be the biggest internal crisis that the UK has faced probably since the Irish left the Union in the 1920s because it's forcing a 
a series of questions about sovereignty, a series of questions about domestic uh, politics, a series of questions about Britain's place in the world that, unfortunately, uh, are incoherent. And I think that incoherence is a product of the competing Brexits. We had one Brexit, and we all knew and understood what it was, then it would be productive of a more coherent, cohesive moment in the kind of British political, uh, cultural uh, moment of, of transition and, and change, right? We don't. We have several Brexits. There are one in many Brexits. Uh, we got the Brexit of the left. I know I can't call Phil a Lexiteer or a Lexiter, uh, or, or you might thump me one, uh, so I won't do that. <laughs> and, you are, and you are sitting right beside him. And I am sitting right beside him. Geologically and geographically. Uh, indeed, indeed. So I had to be very careful for moments of self-preservation. Uh, but let's, let's put this in. The, the fundamental bifurcations within Brexit are, there's a, there's a sovereignty Brexit. There is a free trade bonanza Brexit. There is a Brexit of resentment, right? So there's at least three different forms of Brexit. They're not compatible and they're not um, consistent with each other in terms of what their effect would be. This isn't a moment of clarity. This is a moment of uh, absolute confusion in terms of the forces that are are directing Brexit, pulling against each other, pulling against the Remain faction, which produces uh, a very febrile environment, very productive in many respects, and it's forcing the United Kingdom to ask very fundamental questions about itself. I mean, one of the things I often say to Phil is that here it comes. First, <laughs> first of all, <laughs> the United Kingdom itself isn't democratic in, in, in the sense that the left uh, Brexit people would like to think that it is. It simply isn't. Right? The people are not sovereign. You can, we can say that they, they should be sovereign. They ought to be sovereign. Yes, yes. Uh, and, and maybe one of the positive aspects of Brexit is it forces this conversation about who actually and what does sovereignty mean in the United Kingdom in 2019 as opposed to 1688 or 1832 or 1921 um, and it forces that moment of crystallization around about sovereignty. Uh, as it stands, the, the sovereign in the United Kingdom is the Queen in Parliament yeah. and people think that the Queen is a mere figurehead but she's not right? What the Queen in Parliament represents is a kind of a placeholder for a series of forces and a series of social forces, whether we like them or not, um, who exercise power in her name. And the members of Parliament have to recognise the uh, the extent to which the Queen's powers constitute sovereignty. But this is really important stuff. It's 
it's unexamined in terms of uh, what Brexit's effect is going to be yeah. uh, on the kind of great constitutional settlements that have have predicated uh, British politics since the 17th century. Very good. Uh, no one's thought about this. No one thought about it ahead of the, the except these guys, obviously, because they thought of everything. Uh, <laughs> but the, the sovereignty conundrum that the British have, have um, been content to ignore for hundreds of years because they didn't want to go towards the um, excesses of Jacobinism. Hello, Phil. Um, is, is very, very significant in terms of where British country goes next. Now, these chaps have a very interesting idea about where British culture goes next, but with all uh, recognition of, of, of how interesting their project is, it's a marginal project. It's not going to be their Brexit, right? We, it's uh, no. You mean it won't be a, a, a progressive or left-wing Brexit? Yeah, I mean, to be clear about I'm it. not going to make a value judgment on whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing. What I will say is, who's in? We, <laughs> It's being commandeered by forces that it cannot possibly be rescued from. Yeah. Yeah, whether you, you know, whether you think that's a good thing or a bad thing, again, I'm not going to make a judgment on the call on that. But the fact of the matter is, this is a, a Brexit that is being led by the right. Uh, and here we return to that idea of the incoherency of the right. right? Because we've got, on the one hand, um, the, 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 the restoration of, of British sovereignty in the external sense, uh, and the... <clears throat> the restoration of of uh, power authority legitimacy etc to the British state well that's not necessarily going to devolve into any left wing utopia in fact I would argue that it almost certainly won't I mean on the one hand we've got a, a, a sort of certain authoritarian trend that might uh, manifest itself well, I think more likely uh, is a continued hollowing out of the British demos. Uh, the British polis is going to be reshaped according to a different logic entirely, um, which is going to be the very essence of neoliberalism. It's going to be uh, not so much Singapore on Thames as Tortuga on Thames. Right? Interesting. It's, it's going to be very, very interesting uh, to see how the two forms of conservative thought uh, are going to to resolve these tensions between a hollowed out state and an authoritarian state or that kind of horrible uh, <laughs> weirdly quasi-traditional uh, pioneer um, one nation which is essentially the English nation determining the fate and destiny of Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland and out of a sense of chauvinism as opposed to um, any kind of 
seizing the day in terms of a capacity to reshape the British state. So it would be a rolling back of devolution, a rolling back of anything in terms of a recognition that the United Kingdom is, is, isn't just England plus, you know, an irrelevant Scotland and an irrelevant Wales and an irrelevant Northern Ireland. Uh, because there is this this is the danger of majoritarianism which is that the English by being a hugely more populous nation get to tell the others what to do Uh, but that's going to call into tension the very nature of the United Kingdom itself thanks Uh, Phil would you like to respond to that? Sure so I mean I think the main one of the main issues with Brexit is that nobody has commandeered it so the idea that there is a malevolent coherent right wing project that is uh, driving it, propelling it and is definitely going to um, be able to shape it as it wishes, I think is entirely mischaracterizing the reality of Brexit, which is that it's um, very much something which is to be fought over and is very open-ended. And what's most striking about what's happened is how um, weak and incoherent the right has been. And that's very evident, say, with the ERG. So the supposed um, neoliberal hard hard right core of the Tory party has proven itself unable to command the agenda. It's been terrified, hasn't even overthrown Theresa May out of fear of a jam-making, uh, jam-making hippie, um, Jeremy Corbyn. So there's no, I mean, part of the problem with Brexit is that there is no one driving it. So I think, um, and, you know, to say that as well is also to say the idea that it's necessarily a right-wing project is obviously a self-fulfilling prophecy. The idea that the left has no capacity to shape or intervene in what is a very open-ended process, it will inevitably work to the advantage of the right if um, the left assumes that it can have no, it has no political agency throughout it. Uh-huh. So I'd say, I mean, with respect to, um, despite everything, I do actually agree with um, some of what Sean was saying regarding the degradation of the British constitution. Um, But I mean, Britain's not unique in that. There's all sorts of countries where you have a mismatch between the kind of constitutional, imaginary constitutional structures and the social and political realities of the way in which countries function. The US is a great example of that kind of mismatch. So I mean, um, the major, um, notwithstanding the monarchy and the um, executive power that is granted by virtue of the Queen in Parliament and that idea of sovereignty, the EU is, to my mind, without a doubt, the main blockage to democracy at the moment in Britain, not least because it functions by strengthening executive power at the expense of the legislature. So the maladies of the British constitution are actually reinforced by membership of the European Union. So I mean, I think this is why the um, why withdrawal from the European Union makes the stakes for democracy so high. And the benefit of Brexit is precisely that all these questions are on the table. So the things that Sean raised regarding uh, the need for constitutional renewal, the need for a new convention between the nations, just to say, Wales, Scotland and England. All of these questions have been put on the table by Brexit and the incapacity and weakness of the British state and the British political elite has been exposed. That's a 
benefit in a boon of Brexit. It's exposed for all to see. It requires political creativity to resolve it. Um, and also worth remembering though that the Welsh voted for Brexit. The Scottish voted to remain part of the UK when they decided to remain part of it, when they voted against independence. And therefore they're bound by the majority decision. Now, Brexit is a moment to rewrite the constitutional arrangements between the three nations. And I hope it will also be the opportunity to reunify Ireland. That might come. And that's been put on the table in a way that was inconceivable even five years ago. All of these are positive for Brexit, but they need to be seized and they require political vision and creativity and agency in order to ensure that there's any benefit that can be claimed from it. If I may, I mean, I, I, will draw, I will draw Phil's attention to the fact that I stated that the right is incoherent, the left is incoherent, Brexit itself is incoherent, right? This is, this is where um, I think the problem is going to lie because it's going to come down to a simple question of power. Yeah. It's not going to come down to creativity. It's not going to come down to the capacity to make interesting ideas. It's going to come down to who actually possesses real power. Uh, and in that kind of situation, it's not the uh, it's not the dreamers of the left who will take control. It will be the state itself, and that's the, the danger of Brexit. But what would you say if I can jump in there that maybe you're being a little um, totalizing about the left? I mean, there's different lefts. Obviously, uh, you know, Lee and Phil are here for a very specific reason. We want to give their voice an opportunity to be heard in this context, but there are other left-wing voices that may also be very sympathetic to those ideas. All right, so you're saying the left is uh, not a, a monolithic block. Yes, not a monolithic block. And that the left have uh, a capacity to uh, seize the moment of Brexit in order to enable a sort of uh, re reinvigoration of democracy in the United Kingdom. Here's my question. How, how do you think... My question to you is how do you think political capacity is constituted. How do you think political power is constituted? If you just sit on your ass and do nothing, does that give you power? It's a strategy of left defeatism that you're preaching. Well, so it's even like sitting on ideas. Sitting on your ass is a is a choice, right? So we can we can argue that to sit on one's ass is a perfectly uh, political act. Right? You can argue it's a negative political act, but the, the sad fact of the matter is, if a population of 60 odd million people, 65.9 million out of that 66 million will sit on their arms. So we're talking about, if we're talking about genuinely active politics, that's a very tiny, tiny fraction of the British population with marginal power compared to the power of the state. So doesn't that suggest that it takes only a relatively small mobilization of people to tilt the balance by your calculation? If that's your understanding of power, that basically everything is determined by 100,000 people. The state is just a condensation of social forces. It's not an entity in its own right. We'll see what you say when the state mobilizes power against you if you threaten the state. Whether you like it or not, 
that's the fundamental reality of all politics is we have to confront uh, who has who has power who has agency how can you mobilize it they can mobilize a lot easier than you can and to much greater extent but I think one of the uh, I mean but this is the point right that the weakness of the British state has been exposed the weakness of political elites has been exposed the degradation of representative politics has been exposed so um, the idea that there is uh, some monolithic power system that's simply going to roll over all um, all political options and is going to predetermine what happens I think it's precisely a moment of it's an open political moment and in that moment that's when there are the possibilities for uh, putting forward new ideas it's not to say those new ideas will be realised far from it but it's also not to uh, imagine that the conservative forces of inertia are inevitably going to try and fight them all right, guys. So look, uh, we've got we got Luke and Lee back on the mic here after a short break. Um, this week's been pretty intense in the development of this thing, and I just want to talk a little parliamentary politics here with you now. Um, it seems to me that on the one hand, with Theresa May like literally back against the wall at this stage, Bergdahl telling her she can't get this through again a third time because it's too similar to the last time, so she's effectively put two things on the line to try to sweeten the deal at this stage. One is her own prime ministership, and the other, of course, is splitting the uh, the deal, uh, which effectively puts what's called a political declaration now uh, on a delayed basis and put in the actual sort of terms of the divorce actually as a bill in Parliament, I think coming Friday, if I'm not mistaken. So um, with that all said, then, Parliament this week seems to have asserted its own control over the process and a series of indicative votes <laughs> seems to be, well, I, I'm going to just put it out there, this is what the media is sort of reporting and then you can tell me I'm wrong, but in a series of indicative votes, Parliament seems to have uh, begun a process of trying to find out where the mathematics is for a consensus or something close to a majority. What do you make of it all? Let's start with uh, with Lee, and then uh, we can get Luke to respond. Uh, so, what Parliament took control of this week was just the parliamentary agenda. Uh, the Speaker, who's now just abandoned all pretense of neutrality, partiality, uh, blocks, uh, the, blocks the government. Mr. Jones. That's quite a good impersonation. Clear the lobby. Unlock. The speaker has blocked the government bringing back their withdrawal deal for a third time uh, and allowed an amendment that allowed Parliament to take control of parliamentary business. That allowed them to schedule these uh, indicative votes to give give people a sense of, you know, is there any support for a particular form of Brexit? And what happened was they voted down everything. So literally no to every possible Brexit deal. Uh, So, you know, when this happened, I said, it's not really Parliament taking back control. It's just more hands slapping at the the steering wheel of the British state, the car of state, as it skids all over the icy road to nowhere. The political class is in utter disarray. The one thing that they agree on, uh, really, the majority, what is there a 
majority of Parliament for is that we don't want Brexit. That's what binds Parliament together fundamentally. It's okay. a Remainer Parliament. It's a Remainer Parliament. Three quarters of them voted for Remain. The political parties all campaigned for Remain. They don't want to do it. And they're being dragged, kicking and screaming by the fact that 52% of the population did vote for it. And it's kind of difficult in a so-called democracy just to ignore that yeah. and just to overturn yeah. it. Yeah. They would love for this nightmare to end. Yeah. They don't want to be held accountable to the British public. They want things to continue as before. And this is really annoying to them. They'd love for it to end. And that's why uh, they're tying themselves in knots. It's that. It's the gap that's opened up over many years of European integration between British political class and ordinary voters. The voters have given them an instruction and the British MPs don't really want to carry it out. But at the same time, if they turn around to the electorate and say, do you know what? Fuck you. That's it. Right. The whole thing will just go up in smoke. So they can't do that. But they don't know what else to do. So they're desperately clinging to this crumbling order. And they're so awful that none of them can can command any sort of following in Parliament for any other deal. So you get these kind of non-entities like Yvette Cooper popping up and saying, oh, how about this, how about that? But nobody really follows them. So, you know, people say, Theresa May is the worst Prime Minister ever. Okay, fine. What does that say about the quality of Parliament? Of parliamentarians? That she's the best that Parliament can produce. Right? That they, they can't even they can't even build a no-confidence vote against it. It's it's the complete exposure of the, of the British establishment has been totally and utterly useless. Luke, you have the right of response. <laughs> well, we'll maybe take a different approach and uh, a different angle. I think the problem is that the Parliament's caught between between two two kind of stones, two two kind of grinding stones and a quern. Uh, one is the referendum. Right. And uh, the majority of people in Parliament want to respect the referendum. So there has to be some kind of lead. Now, probably the easiest thing to do from a political point of view would be think about a no deal. But there's a problem with that. And now there's been a hell of a lot about project fear and about things not coming true in terms of predictions. A lot of that uh, is based upon not actually looking what both uh, experts and practitioners uh, in trade and in various areas of uh, British life affected by Brexit have been saying. And basically, uh, as we know from Bank of England, from overwhelming majority of economists, from practitioners like uh, customs officials in Dover who say they can't handle it, uh, to uh, um, uh, farmers uh, in uh, in North Wales. Uh, basically, actually, even experts abroad. So people who haven't got a, a um, uh, an axe to grind in here, going, uh, what 
the hell? Actually, you know, even people right across the political spectrum saying that uh, that a no deal will be disastrous. We know this. Uh, and, you know, it, however much people talk about Project Fear and so forth, uh, you know, this is, this, is a, this is a reality in terms of both practitioners uh, and experts. Um, so that then also doesn't become an option. So they're left in this middle, in which all they can do up do is come up with these schemes that will either mean that Britain will get um, independence in terms of uh, of uh, its uh, cutting ties with uh, uh, the European Union, but lose political power. Um, it'll um, uh, or um, some kind of, um, of fudge to keep it going by kicking it down the can, and, and that's where they're kind of left, um, you know, because these these kind of two um, from completely different directions, these kind of two blocks prevent them from thinking uh, uh, either for a no deal or for revocation or remaining in the EU. So, you know, for me, that that is the fundamental problem. Now, it may also be, as as Lee says, there's a failure of, uh, of leadership here. Uh, and I think that's probably true, too. Uh, but even, I think, if you had uh, a Moses uh, and a Caesar uh, and, and, uh, and a Lenin and uh, yes, exactly, and uh, I don't think it'll help. Okay. So it's not, it's not going, it's not a question so much of leadership as forces. Uh, yeah, I mean, eventually, I suppose, they either have to decide, I think, to go for a no deal, and we know what no deal. We have, we have people who could tell us what no deal would mean on all the different uh, uh, aspects. And it's a very complex issue, leaving the European Union. Uh, and we're talking about a situation in which the world has fundamentally changed and become uh, extremely integrated on so many levels. Uh, or it's uh, defying the will of the people. You've got a problem. Yeah, i got a problem. <laughs> <laughs> I need speed. Um, <laughs> exactly. When it comes down to it, nature is more important than all of us. That's going into the, that's going into the final part. Okay. <laughs> okay. okay. Lee, last time we had you on the show, and this is kind of moving to the wrap-up section out here, um, Last time we had you on, you, 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 you weren't exactly uh, equivocal about your preference for a no deal. I mean, you, I think no deal would not be a problem for you. Is that correct? It, it would be a problem in the sense that it wouldn't be a smooth ride, but right. I don't think it would be as catastrophic as, as Lucy's just spelled out. Uh, yeah. The, I think the dominant, the dominant emotion that has uh, dominated the whole debate around the EU is fear. Um, it's, it's all been about not disrupting the status quo because it would be much worse and well, the far right will be empowered and oh it will be, uh, what, what was it, not Singapore on Thames but 
Tortuga on Thames. Tortuga on Thames. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of kind of dark images of what what horrible things might happen. And I, I genuinely believe that um, that parliamentarians be- have believed this stuff. They've they've told themselves that No Deal is such a catastrophic, you know, world world shattering outcome that they really it does appear to them to be an outcome that they just simply cannot tolerate. So it does appear that objective force that they're caught between this stone. Um, there are people like Michael who are stockpiling food. <laughs> uh, but I think it's really terrible that people like Michael are doing that, uh, that they feel like they have to, that, that people have been terrorised into stockpiling beet, baked beans in this day and age. Now, the reality is that it wouldn't be a smooth transition, but it won't be so catastrophic. You know, we'll manage. It'll be okay. And a, and a decent government, a responsible government, one that had genuinely accepted uh, the referendum result and was not primarily concerned to do a damage limitation exercise, and also one that properly understood what the EU was and how it was going to handle the Brexit process. A responsible government would have been preparing for a no deal from day one and would not have triggered Article 50 until there was a very clear plan about what the UK would seek and a plan to abandon negotiations and focus on no deal preparations at a certain point if it was clear that it was not going to get there. So the problem since day one has been the government that really didn't want to do it, was being led by the nose by the electorate, didn't prepare very well and now we find ourselves in a very poorly prepared situation. Even, even so, I don't think it would be disastrous. But if the preparations had started two and a half years ago, we wouldn't be in the position that we're in today. I would just sort of agree there with Lee on one thing. I think it's mishandled. Uh, the Article 50 being triggered in March, uh, that was a mistake. Well, the first reaction should, to that vote should have been, okay, we've got this vote, but it's... Sorry, we've got this vote. It's not very clear. Uh, we need now to have a proper process and we find out what leave means. And that might have also required very soon after, and this happens in countries that have referenda, is to have second and third referenda about to nail down what people want. And that was never done. Now, I, I disagree with Lee on the... Yeah, I disagree with Lee on the, obviously on the issue of, uh, of what no deal means. But I think on that issue, I, I think that was an important opportunity lost and I think uh, you know that's that's something uh, you know that I think we really have to underscore it's true but we also have to remember what that moment in British politics was like uh, because with distance it becomes very dim so if we rewind to that moment there was a reason why Theresa May invoked article 50 when she did which is that parliament and the whole political establishment the media and so on they were rebelling like crazy against the electorate and they were saying oh we don't want to do this it's terrible this is ridiculous the people are stupid and Theresa May to her credit right, she understood that the, the people have been promised that it was their decision and we will implement it and she as 
as, a, as I think somebody with a genuine sense of public service she believed that we've been given an instruction it would be a real mistake not to do it and so she felt it was important to discipline Parliament and lock it in so there was a reason why she did it and it was because the political class didn't accept the instruction fully so if they had and if representative democracy hadn't been so hollowed out then what you would have been able to do was to have a serious debate in Parliament about how that instruction was to be carried out. Now, personally, I wouldn't have favoured subsequent referendum. I, I don't like plebiscitary democracy. Uh, no, actually, I like, nor do I, actually. I, yeah. like, I like representative democracy. Yeah. So, in an ideal world, Parliament would have taken the instruction from the population and then had a, a rational debate about, well, OK, how do we implement that, that instruction? And it would have been up to them to work out the details because referenda are poor ways of making complex decisions. On big constitutional questions, they may be appropriate, but then it should have been Parliament's role to debate that. Because Parliament was not willing to be to take the instruction, then the executive had to step in and say, right, fine, uh, we have to take this forward. But then you fall into the EU's trap, which is the discussions for Article 50 are highly technocratic, they take place behind closed doors, no accountability, nothing, no debate. So 18 months later, the government comes back with a crappy deal that satisfies absolutely nobody and has got no chance of going through Parliament. She presents it as a fait accompli from these negotiations. It's classic EU. Here's what's been negotiated in Brussels. Suck it up. Take it or leave it. And, of course, Parliament's still not willing to take it. And that's why we're in the situation that we're in now. It's a result of many decades of European integration when representative democracy is broken down. Um, I want to um, probably make this the last question of our show yeah, yeah. today. The question is, and you can get there however you want, uh, so I'm inviting you perhaps to also respond to me in saying this, but um, it seems to me the only alternative to a fresh Brexit at this point is some kind of process whereby an election takes place. Mm. How likely is an election? <laughs> and uh, what would be the likely mechanism by which it to be involved? <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's outside of my... Yes, exactly. Predictions on Brexit first. And I'm not a British politics expert, so... Okay. I, I don't know either. <laughs> no, exactly. I mean, we are, I are. Here we are in ISA. I suppose... I'm, what, I, what I would say on this is that... Um, Theresa May's deal won't get passed. No, it won't. Uh, not at all. So, uh, she has promised her head on a plate, her own head on a plate, if it, yeah, if it yeah. does get passed. Yeah, yeah. So... I'm just curious, like, if it doesn't, yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what happens well, there? What happens how would an election settle anything? I've never understood this. Because you know, the, the argument would be that if, uh, say, suddenly there were to be an election called, the European Union would uh, perhaps say, okay, well, you can do it, you can do an election on the same day as the European Union's European Parliament uh, elections, uh, perhaps producing a different majority, uh, perhaps producing a new negotiating team, perhaps getting beyond the impact. 
tracks and uh, two-year extension is suddenly on the table? I think they, the, if, if the British Parliament decided that nothing could be decided, which seems to be their position, uh, and that therefore we need a long extension, they can do that without a general election. I think they would generally prefer to do that rather than going to the country. So that could come as soon as Monday, based on this indicative votes process that's currently I think it's. I think it, the most likely thing now is uh, they, they, they go for a long extension and they try to soften Brexit, i.e. politically neutralise the departure. A crashing out is, is, is just unthinkable for this parliament. They just won't let it happen. Um, they're not going to pass Theresa May's deal, I think. I think the, the likeliest outcome is, is they'll go for a long extension to try to renegotiate from scratch. I'd agree with that. I think that would be my bet. But the only problem is is that uh, it's so path dependent. Yeah. Uh, but I, I would I would also back that, yeah. I mean, that's, it's, it, that's, it's very risky to make any predictions, but that's my Indeed. best bet at the moment. Yeah. And if it was an election, I think, ironically, what would happen is the Conservatives would be returned with a larger majority. And so, ironically, it would be easier for Theresa May to get her deal through after an election than before. Because the Labour Party has totally shot itself in the foot by the appalling way that it has handled Brexit from day one. It's uh, sitting on the fence after the referendum, trying to please both its Remainer middle class base in the metropolitan heartlands and its uh, working class Leave voters in the in the north and Wales. That has just come apart completely in the last couple of weeks. So you have different members of the shadow cabinet saying yeah, Labour's a Remain party, and then another member saying Labour's not a Remain party. We honour the referendum result. They have no idea what they stand for. What would they say to the people if they were forced to go to them in a, in a general election campaign? Nothing coherent to say. They'd be torn apart. Uh, so there's the irony, is that all the polls show that the Tories would be returned with a very substantial majority. It would neutralise the uh, the problem of the European research group, the, the hardline Brexiteers, and May could probably ram her deal through. <laughs> she wouldn't need the DUP. Exactly. Any final words on that? That's, that's, I, 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 I will go out on a limb and I'll say that I, I'm not so persuaded that it would be a landslide Conservative win. I think um, the polling still shows Corbyn ahead of the last election and in fact his track the track record is good for it is that's the data that I've seen anyway as of a week or so ago I mean I'm not a British politics specialist so I, I can't judge on this one the only thing is is that British politics seems to change on a dime so often uh, over the well, last two years for an election, yeah. I would not be happy in prediction even if I was an expert what I would say is yeah. that there's an unprecedented fluidity to British politics right now. That history is back. Right? We lived in an era of real stability. Yes. Politics was beige, it was boring, it was locked down. Politics is back and it's uncomfortable, it's difficult, but actually it's something to be celebrated. But look at the, you know, Corbyn 
it's a good campaigner. He picked up a lot of votes in the campaign last time. And that overturned another truism of British political science, which is campaigns don't shift don't shift the polls. Well, that was a unique election in the sense that it was supposed to be a Brexit election. But Brexit was not discussed. Yeah. It was an election fought on the NHS and other That's issues. Totally There's no way you can evade that this time. Oh, I, I, this time I, I, the election, watch them. Yeah, this watch time them. the election would have to be about Brexit. And Labour Party has got nothing coherent to say about Brexit. They can't duck, they can't duck it anymore. And they're completely divided on the question. And I think they would crash and burn in the party. If you listen into the various guests that they have on Novara, the podcast, or, uh, you know, what you're going to hear, and I, I don't think anyone listening to this podcast would, would claim I was lying on this, that uh, they've even um, had, had, a, had a recent guest. Let me see if I can remember his name. Tom, uh, Tom Kubasi of IPPR. Um, you know, basically, making the argument that the Navarre been making for some time that basically like Brexit is just something that like Corbyn doesn't need to think about anymore yeah. it's, it's, it's Theresa May's baby let her own it and they just want to get on and talk about literally the things that you just said they shouldn't the, 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 the NHS and everything else this is a this is a, a fantasy that Corbyn can just ignore Brexit and focus on the real issues the reality is that Brexit is a real issue it's not some fringe, wacky thing like uh, dangerous dogs or traffic cones or something like that. It's a fundamental question about how the country is governed. And a poll came out just this week asking people, do you, do, how strongly do you identify with political parties? And how strongly do you identify with Leave and Remain? This is really striking. 7% of people strongly identify with their political parties. 40% percent of people identify with a strong position over Brexit. I never thought that Brexit would produce these hardened, leave, remain identities. I never thought it would. I, I was totally wrong because I, I, I overestimated the willingness of the losing side to reconcile itself to the result and, and move forward together. I thought that we could do that as a society. The fact that we've not been able to do that is really upsetting. Yeah. Um, but that's where we are. If you can't ignore this question and duck it and say, oh, can we just focus on poverty in the NHS? No. You've got to have an answer to the most burning question of the day. It's the Let me give them the final word here, uh, then we'll end it. Yeah. Can I just say, Joe, just yeah. two points. Uh, there's a lot of worries about the British public being split. Um, we often forget that the British public has been split numerous times. for most of its history, actually. Yeah. Yeah. The 1930s, it was deeply split. Yeah. We had a constitutional crisis then as well. Yes. The other thing as well is, uh, just to sort of reiterate, I think, when we talk about the Leave and Remain, of course, is how mixed both of those groups are. They, they cover all social classes, all political persuasions. So, you know, we can't generalise about Leave and Remain voters. 
What's your final word? All right, guys, it's been real. Thanks so much for sticking this through. This has been awesome. Um, I really appreciate both. The, this has been the Rumble in Toronto. Yeah, 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 yeah. The showdown. That's been good. This in the Sheraton. The showdown in the Sheraton. Yeah, good one. Not so much. It's been a good discussion. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, my favorite thing at ISA so far. Great, man. Yeah. Great. That's good. Great. We'll That's do it good. again. We'll do it again yeah, in Hawaii yeah. next yeah, year. Yeah, yeah. We'll, I, I noticed, and, and we still don't have breakfast. I noticed. I noticed. Uh, go to ISA <laughs> the, the sixty years in the future, <laughs> and we'll still be talking about, about Brexit. Brexit. Who yeah. wants to look after my gear while I go? I, I can do that. Right. Yeah. yeah. So,